Hey folks, it's not long until our online software development conference, QCon Plus, takes place this May 10 to 20. QCon Plus focuses on the people that develop and work with future technologies. You'll learn practical techniques and be inspired by over 60 software leaders deep in the trenches, creating software, scaling architectures, and fine-tuning their technical leadership to help you adopt the right practices and patterns. Learn more about the conference at qcon.plus. We hope to see you there. Good day, folks. This is Shane Hasty for the InfoQ Culture Podcast. I'm at QCon 2019 in London, and I'm sitting down with Randy Sharp. Randy, welcome. Thanks for taking the time to talk to us today. Thanks, Shane. Happy to be here. It's good to see you again. Now, you and I have met each other a few times over the years, but uh, I suspect a fair number of our audience aren't familiar with you. So would you mind giving us a bit of your background? Sure, absolutely. So I currently work as VP of Engineering at WeWork. I've been there for about 10 months, and my team is responsible for what we call the member experience. So WeWork is co-working spaces, as maybe people know, and my team builds all the member-facing technology, mobile apps, web apps, etc., that the members use. And we also build tools for what we call the community managers. So if you ever go into one of our buildings, there are people behind the desk that are troubleshooters and event planners and wonderful people, and we, uh, we build the tools for them. Before WeWork, I was VP of Engineering at Stitch Fix. That's a U.S. clothing retailer that uses a ton of data science and machine learning to figure out what kind of clothes people would like. Earlier, I worked at more kind of traditional software companies, I guess I'd say. So I worked at eBay for a long time, for about six and a half years as the chief engineer. I spent some time at Google running engineering for Google App Engine. That's Google's platform as a service. I tried my hand at starting a startup and learned how difficult that is. (laughs) Lots of different things. You gave a talk at the conference that had a sellout crowd, which is quite unusual in the culture track, where you were talking about high-performance cultures. What makes a high-performance culture? Yeah, well, so the wonderful thing about all the five talks in the track is that we all took different and very complementary angles to it. That The small angle that I took was, was first to talk about how people treat one another, so sort of trust and teamwork, and we can dive into that if you'd like. Then I wanted to talk about autonomy and accountability, and that's maybe about how to form teams, how to give them the right incentives, the right motivations, the right scope for what they can do. And then last, I talked more about the culture as it related to practices. And so I talked, I talked about what I called pragmatism and progress. So let's explore these topics. Trust and teamwork. Isn't it obvious? You would think. You would totally think. Yeah, I mean, it turns out that, I mean, no, well, you, I was going to say no surprise. Like, it, maybe it is a little bit of surprise to traditional, like, Taylorist managers. If you treat people well, they do well. And there's lots of research going back, you know, hundreds of years. But one of the great books is from 1960 called The Human Side of Enterprise. And they talk about these terribly named but wonderfully formed ideas of theory X and theory Y. Mm -hmm. The author was trying to explore what were leadership's perceptions about what motivates people, right? So the leader, like, what what do they think people are like? Why do they think they're motivated by? Okay, so the theory X idea is that people are kind of inherently lazy. They need to be micromanaged. They need to be extrinsically motivated. And you can imagine that that produces all sorts of very terrible authoritarian, you know, repressive uh, regimes in the workplace around micromanagement and around telling people what to do and, and disempowering them. Sadly, as you well know, 
because why would we we wouldn't talk be talking about this stuff if everybody were doing it sadly a lot of like traditional organizations you know do behave that way theory why on the other hand is this idea that people are intrinsically motivated they genuinely want to do a good job they want to perform well and the job of management is not to micromanage it's to get out of people's way it's to remove their roadblocks it's to be a servant leader as we're saying now all those ideas and interestingly Sadly, but it's important to know that the difference between theory X and theory Y is not so much a conscious choice. Mm -hmm. It comes from people's like inherent beliefs about other people. It's it's changeable, but it's not changeable with a snap of fingers, if that makes any sense. Because if I believe that people are fundamentally lazy, uh, which I don't, but I've worked for people who do, that is not amenable to one counterexample. Do you see what I mean? Like, yeah. I can't just say, oh, well, this, you know, well, Shane's not lazy. And, and no, 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 but everybody else but Shane or like Shane's secretly hiding his laziness or something like that. Anyway, and the reason why that's relevant to culture and then to business performance and the connection there is through lots of great research. But the particularly great book, which I'm sure lots of people listening to the podcast have heard of, is Nicole Forsgren's Accelerate book. Mm -hmm. So she published that book in July of last year, July of 2018, and it explores why organizations perform well. She talks about a lot of practices and the science behind why they work, mm -hmm. which we can talk about if you'd like. But at the core of a lot of those ideas is a culture around treating people well and around empowering them. And it turns out that these generative cultures, as mm -hmm. she quotes, so generative culture is one that's characterized by sort of trust. And, you know, rather than shooting the messenger, if there's bad news, you sort of celebrate them. We celebrate when people succeed, obviously, but we also celebrate their failure because we try to figure out what we learn about it. And then it turns out, maybe no surprise, but it's worth underlining that it turns out that the really high performing sort of Googles, Amazons, Netflixes of the world all tend to have these generative cultures that mm -hmm. encourage people in that way. And by contrast, the companies that don't perform as well, the lower performers tend to be more, the terms are a bureaucratic mm -hmm. culture, which characterized by rules and standards. So just follow the rules and this is how you do it. And, you know, think of work as an assembly line, maybe something like that. And then the worst place, and again, characterized by the worst performers are pathological cultures. So really toxic fear and threat. So if anybody's, sadly, I've worked in these places, and so I know how it feels, is people will be very defensive. Teams won't trust other teams to get their jobs done because they're afraid they're going to be fired or humiliated or something like that if they don't do their job. So that doesn't encourage people to do their best work. That's not a high-performing culture. Someone might think, and I've worked for people who think this, that if I threaten you, you're going to do a great job. And the sad part is if I threaten you for the next maybe week, you maybe will work really hard, but you're not going to be motivated at it. And what you're ultimately going to do is under promise. Like, I don't want to go out on a limb, right, and take any risks. So I'm going to sandbag like, oh, I can produce, you know, one unit of value instead of 10. Or You see what I'm saying? Like, it doesn't encourage people to try, take risks, to learn from things. So it's a long-term self-defeating strategy. Anyway, to just to connect that up again, I'll just briefly to connect that up through the Accelerate book is, you know, these really great generative cultures that are characterized by trust also end up being great on these engineering metrics that we know lead time and de and deployment and you know lower change failure rate and faster time to recover but also they tend to be not tend they the science shows they're two and a half times more likely to be better on business results like productivity and profitability and all that so it turns out that culture 
it doesn't take too many steps to get from a really good culture to really great business results. You said it's not an easy transition for the Theory X manager to move to that Theory Y, and I've heard of Theory Z now as well, the even more collaborative, self-organizing. How do we help that manager, that leader, make that transition? That is an excellent question, and I wish I had a good answer for it, to be honest. I mean, I think now we're in the range of psychology and psychiatry. I will say that I didn't know about Theory X and Theory Y when I was in I'm not going to talk too much in detail, but when I was in the situation where it was really relevant, coincidentally, Jez Humble, who was also one of the Accelerate authors, was working on his book Lean Enterprise with Barry O'Reilly at the time, and he and I knew one another, and he had me review the culture chapter because he knew I was struggling with the culture that I was working in. And in reviewing that book, I learned about Theory X and Theory Y, and I said, that is why I can't change this person's approach to the world. And I did think Mm -hmm. as an engineer and as a fundamentally theory why person that I could simply provide a bunch of counterexamples, you know, Mm -hmm. hey, look, I've been in this role for, you know, six months. Remember all the things that were on fire when I started? Yes. See that they are all great. Yes. Did you notice that I didn't have to fire anybody or humiliate them and that teams are working well together and they're treating each other well? Yes. Shouldn't we do that everywhere? No, people are fundamentally lazy. Like, okay. No, but I'd love to give you a pithy, you know, solution to that problem. Again, like I say, it comes from a fundamental belief about what other people are like and it takes a while to dig through that. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. So moving to the next topic, autonomy and accountability. Two sides of the same coin? I think you can't have one without the other. So let me just say briefly what I mean. So I think, and the science shows, that high-performing organizations and high-performing cultures have small teams with well-defined areas of work that they can directly connect with to business value. So like directly providing value to customers or directly providing value to businesses. So they've got a goal and they're working together to figure out how to move whatever metric or whatever goal in the the right direction. And a great thing to do is to give the team autonomy in meeting that goal. So, okay, I'm I'm gonna make this up. Like I would like to move Well, this is exactly my team. I would like to move member satisfaction of people that come to WeWork in the positive direction. And and actually, that's my entire organization's Mm -hmm. overall goal. And we have subdivided that goal into various sub-goals, each of which uh, teams are working on. So So I'm sort of putting all this stuff into practice very directly. So one part of it is I want to say team or overall organization, we want to move satisfaction. Let's experiment and figure out lots of different ways and think about ways we could move member satisfaction. We could make room booking faster. We could provide more beer, you know, all these different things that we could do, you know, and we're exploring, you know, many of those, not the beer one, but lots of different things. If I only do autonomy one, if I say you have full autonomy to do whatever you want to meet the goal, that's great, but you also have to hold people accountable, right? You also ultimately, we also do ultimately want to drive that business value and want to drive business results. And so we need to make sure that people feel responsible. Maybe another way to say it is to feel a sense of ownership around it, right? And so one of the things I was saying in the talk, which is, you know, so many things are like, if I think about things as a parent at work, I do the right thing. And so autonomy without accountability is like a child, right? So I have a, I'm a single parent of a 12 year old. He's pretty autonomous in the, in the moment and, and very responsible and wonderful. But you know, when he's like one or two, like he goes around and he's not fully responsible for his actions and we shouldn't hold him to that. So autonomy without accountability is sort of like that. But many of us may have also worked in organizations where you had accountability without autonomy. Mm -hmm. So Shane, I'm gonna need you to 
improve the efficiency of this organization, drive costs down. And you ask, well, Randy, can I change this, change this? Oh, no, you can't change any of those things. (laughs) Right. Can't change anything, but you need to move the metric. And so that's accountability without autonomy. I think those two things go together. Mm -hmm. And there are lots of other phrasings of this that are equally or more familiar to the listeners. So Netflix has a wonderful way of saying freedom and responsibility. Mm -hmm. So I think... Different words, same idea. So one of the things I've heard in, in this context and, and looked at is the, the importance of, of clear boundaries in that situation. Yeah. The boundaries within which you, you've got the autonomy and the edges where you know to ask. Yes, great question. And I want to explore boundaries in two different ways. First, I think the one you're implying, and then I think there's another important one, which is about scope of teams. Mm-hmm. But the one that you're implying, and if you're not, it's fine, it's a great one anyway, is, I mean, we're engineers. Could I choose any possible programming language, programming framework, etc.? And the way I've seen lots of companies approach it in lots of different ways I think either end of the spectrum is dysfunctional. And what do I mean by that? I think after a certain scale, a monoculture where everything is all in one, like you can have any kind of color car as long as it's black, you can have any programming language you like as long as it's Java or whatever. I think that restricts people's ability to solve the problems in the best way mm-hmm. with the trade-off that everything is shareable and people are easily moved between teams and we're all in the same stack. So that, you know, so there's definitely a trade-off there. The way on the other end that says everything is complete anarchy, every one of my 20 teams is using a different programming language in a different environment and an entirely different deployment tool, an entire different monitoring system, like that's crazy as well. So the really high performing ones tend to be in the middle where there's, I'm gonna borrow another Netflix term, a paved path. Mm -hmm. So in traditional, I'm just happy to use Netflix as an example, in the traditional earlier Netflix, like there were Java shops, so lots of tools and now open source projects that were you know built around their Java frameworks. So that was the easy thing. So if you did everything that way, you got a ton of stuff for free and it was really easy. And at the same time, as they noticed, as they evolved over time, Java and that stack, even though amazing, was not the best solution for every problem. And so that's where the autonomy comes in. So the way I like to think about it is the framework for the teams is if you choose the paved path, everything's going to be so much easier. If you choose the other path, here's where the accountability comes in. You need to do you know, Haskell is the best solution to this problem because reasons. Okay, cool. You're still going to have to integrate with a monitoring system. You're still going to have to figure out how it's deployed correctly, et cetera, et cetera. But if and when, when Haskell or some other programming environment is the perfect solution to your problem, there's a kind of activation energy, mm-hmm. if I can use a physics analogy. Like you have to overcome you have to take into account that you're going to have to maybe build a lot of the stuff that you would have gotten for free with the paved path. And what that isn't is you're forbidden to try a new thing. But what it is is that when you are literally going off the path and hacking through, you know, the underbrush or the wilderness or whatever, that's harder, but it's worth it if that's, I mean, I'm imagining like some peninsula where you could go way all the way around or you could like take the shortcut up and over the mountain, like kind of where I live in California. And sometimes it's great to take the freeways that go up and all the way around. And sometimes, you know, to get from the coast to the bay, you could go up and over the mountain, even though it's pretty steep and pretty wooded. I don't know if that's that's helpful, but yeah, yeah, that's a nice, for me anyway, a nice analogy, a nice way of looking at it. Culture and practice. Yes. When I look at what we're talking about here, and I think back my own experience in Agile since the early 2000s, the extreme programming technical practices, they were considered sacrosanct. 
not a lot of organizations implemented them, but they were so important to building quality in and the idea of self-organizing teams, all of this stuff. So, you know, Scrum, Kanban, the manifesto as a set of simple principles and values. These things have been around for 20 plus years. Yeah. Why are we still talking about it? Why are we still talking about it? Why haven't we just done it? Yeah, that's a great question. Yeah, if I could put it in the context of the talk super briefly. So the last section I, I was exploring what I called pragmatism and progress and several ideas in there which you're alluding to. So the, the first idea is I think we always need to know what problem we're trying to solve. And that seems like it should be so obvious, but a lot of times we get into the detail and we're, we go through the mechanics without figuring, well, oh, actually what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to make members more satisfied. <laughs> you know, I'm not, my goal is not to produce technology. My goal is to produce member satisfaction, you know, in my particular example. And so always keeping in mind that, that problem that we need to solve, that's, that's straight out of Agile. The other idea that I suggested, I used a different set of words intentionally, but I say fewer things, more done. Mm -hmm. That is exactly, and I'm going to use many different phrases, that is exactly reduce whip. (laughs) That is exactly smaller batch sizes, Mm -hmm. right, from lean and agile. And so why, Randy, one might ask, why are you saying these same agile things in different words? And what I have found is when I communicate these things to teams and to business partners, the simplest, meaning no disrespect, the simplest, stupidest way to say it, not because the people that are listening are stupid in any way, but just for me, I find it way more evocative if I can use no jargon, very simple terms, very pithy. And it, by the way, if I had more time, I would have written you a yeah. you know a shorter letter. It takes a while for me, at least, to to like refine something into into a pithy phrase. But that fewer things, more done, which encompasses let's not do five things with five people. Let's try to do you know maybe two at most, maybe three at most. Try to get those things done, get them shipped, get mm-hmm. a produce customer value more quickly. It also encompasses the idea of producing incremental progress along the way. So I want to do fewer things in parallel, but I also want to be more done along the way, if that makes any sense. So I don't, I want to be, I'll say, completely done with what I intended to do in the beginning earlier than I would otherwise, maybe by putting more people on it. But also, if I can think more carefully about making incremental progress and shipping things along the way, I can produce more more value. And as you well know, and this is made very much part of the Agile from the very beginning, the idea of if we can ship incremental pieces of value, we will learn more and we tighten the feedback loop. So we might think we had 10 steps. We might feel like with our customers, we might be done at number five, or we might realize at three or five or seven, you know, this isn't a great direction. There's another direction to go. So we're more resilient to priority changes and learning things. Anyway, as you well know, and are, you know, nodding, this is all so obvious and so directly out of, yeah, like you say, extreme programming, agile manifesto, all those things. Why are we still talking about it? It's because we're not doing them in practice. And I'm not sure why. I mean, I I love your thoughts, actually. I'm not exactly sure why that's true. For me, I do find, even though I know these practices, I mean, I've lived in high-performing organizations for a while, and I've seen these practices, and I've come to, you know, really believe in them, but some of them are counterintuitive. You would think, without the math and the experience, you would think that if I have five things or more five things to do, I better get started on all of them. Like, and a lot of times people are like that in their own personal lives, you know, like they get going on lots of different projects, but never finish any of them, right? It's obvious. But the thing to remember is that 
in the business context, particularly in the software context, it doesn't matter how much effort we've put into the thing. If we haven't shipped it, it doesn't matter. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, like, no value it, it's until it's so in the obvious. Like it's like, yeah. oh, well, you know, we've been spending, this is not any of my situations, but I was talking with other unnamed people at the conference who had this experience. There's a team in my organization that's been working for two and a half years on this thing, and they have, still haven't shipped anything. Yeah. I'm like, well, what should we do with them? I'm like, well, they're probably great people, but that project isn't great. Like there's, that is not a good thing because as you, as they were, and the reason why they were asking was, was they knew this, but there is exactly zero value in what they have produced. I would contend it's going negative. Yeah, well, that's where I was gonna go next. So there is zero, I'll say positive value. They have produced nothing, but the opportunity cost, what could they, what could that, I don't know this team, but like what could those eight people have done for, oh my gosh, two and a half years? What other value could they have provided? You can measure that in the millions or the tens of millions, you know? And it is. We know it. And a lot of the industry doesn't seem to do it. And, and the Accelerate book is great because it does call out. These are the things that the generative organizations are doing, the ones that are getting those metrics, getting those results. I don't want to interrupt you, but I do want to underline one thing. One of the things I so love about, again, Nicole Forsgren's approach to this and the book and it's a quick read. It's an easy read, and I've already read it twice. The first half of the book is all the stuff that you should do. All the stuff that separate the high-performing organizations from the lower-performing organizations. And that's already valuable because it's very well distilled, very clearly stated. But the second half of the book is all the science about why it works. Yeah. So one of the many answers to the why aren't we doing this, <laughs> Randy, one part of it is that some of these practices do seem counterintuitive yeah. or don't always come natural to everybody, and that's legit. But the other is, well, we're different. You know, even if you believe it, yeah. like we're, di we're different yeah. at fill-in-the-blank, yeah. you know, large bank or fill-in-the-blank enterprise software company. I will say very openly, and this is meaning no disrespect to these places, eBay had very much of an exceptionalist. So eBay is very different. Mm. Google, everybody knows. I mean, all the wonderful things about Google. I loved working there. And also, Google has had and you know still has a very like exceptionalist view of the world we are google we're at a different scale than everybody else we have different uh, classes of problems etc cetera, etc cetera. and they're not entirely wrong about those things and they are agile but the point is that you can be very one of the answers to the why aren't we doing it is like oh it doesn't work for us yeah that's where i'm coming back like the second half of the accelerate book is yeah it does <laughs> it doesn't work for oh this couldn't possibly work for finance it does it couldn't possibly work for a regulated industry yeah it does it couldn't possibly work for manufacturing yes it does it's like it's yeah. all in there and you know she's a scientist no surprise you know a scientist would say confounding factors mm -hmm. what are all the other things other than my hypothesis that it's generative culture and it's continuous delivery and all these great practices what are the other things that could explain these outcomes that are not you know, that are not my hypothesis, right? That is science. You know, it turns out that the hypothesis is, you know, resilient to all those, all those other things. It's, it doesn't matter what industry you're in for the most part. It doesn't matter whether you're producing enterprise software or consumer software or infrastructure, blah, blah, blah. All these things, all these things tend to matter, tend to be valuable. Anyway, I, sorry, I want to just rant about that a little bit because yeah. that's the, I mean, among the many geniuses of that mm -hmm. book, are the distilling of the practices, but the explaining why, because then you, you can give that second half of the book, or even the first chapter, by the way, the second half of the book to the skeptical engineer, the skeptical business partner, the skeptical CEO, 
please read this and then let's talk because this explains why these practices work and that might be the third thing maybe now only now do we have enough i mean look there were seven or eight years of the state of devops report where the the research went into this but maybe some of the skeptics you know can be can be uh, convinced by the science yeah the critical mass perhaps of of evidence and knowledge yeah Randy, thanks so much for taking the time to talk to us. This has been really good. If people want to continue the conversation, where do they find you? So I'm on Twitter at at Randy Schaup, all one word. I also blog every so often on Medium. Again, it's Randy Schaup. And people can find me on LinkedIn. Again, Randy Schaup. I have a relatively uncommon name. So Thanks so much. Thank you.